All right, Acts chapter 20. <clears throat> uh, that was Acts chapter 20, verses 7 through 12. But we're going to look go, go on down to Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 25. So remember, Paul has um, had gone to Ephesus. He spent three years in Ephesus. Now he's left Ephesus, and he's making his rounds, and he's trying to get back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And this is why he did not waste any time. It's why he didn't stay at Troas more than the time that he did because he's got to get to Jerusalem. So Troas was a, a city on the coast, uh, on, the, on the western coast of Asia. And Paul sails down from there and he's ultimately going to go to Jerusalem. And he sails to a place called Miletus, which... Uh, was close to Ephesus, but he bypassed Ephesus. When Paul gets to Miletus, he had sent word to the elders at Ephesus and said, meet me at Miletus because I need to talk to you. And this is where we pick up. Um, this is where we're going to pick up here in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 25. Paul has sailed here and has landed at Miletus, and the Ephesian elders are there with him. And that's where we'll begin in verse 25. And indeed now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day, and I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, Men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Christ. And we ask God that you would, by the Holy Spirit that dwells within each believing heart, that you would open our hearts and open our minds, that your good word would have entrance, and it would be as good seed planted in good soil, and that you would bring an increase, a harvest of righteous fruit, that we would be a people bearing witness to Christ in this world. That we would be, Lord Jesus, what you have commanded us to be. Salt and light to this world. Father, let this be so and let it be to your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so this, this scripture here, by the way, is one of the scriptures that is foundational to our biblical eldership training. Because in this context, 
what I just read to you, Paul is talking to the elders uh, of the church at Ephesus. Remember, Paul spent three years in Ephesus building a foundation, and it said that all Asia had heard the word of the Lord. He sat up in the school of Tyrannus and would teach daily, and people would come. And Paul was strategic in spending three years in Ephesus because he knew because of Ephesus, because of the size of the city and the importance of the city, that people were coming in literally from all over the empire, from all over the world. And, and in those three years, Paul taught the gospel, established the church there, and now is getting ready to go to Jerusalem, and his goal is to go to Rome. And so Paul is giving this word. He's talking to the elders or the shepherds, the word elder, the word overseer. Our English word comes from a Greek word that literally means shepherds uh, because that's what they did. They shepherd, they were shepherds of God's people, of the flock. And so it was a word to shepherds, but also to sheep. Because all shepherds are also sheep, right? It was a word to preachers and to those that would be preached to. It was a word for disciple makers and for disciples. In other words, it is a word for us all today. Whether we are elders, overseers, shepherds, or just simply sheep. We're all sheep living under the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 25, Paul says, And indeed now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching, the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Now, Paul understood he was never going to come back there and see them again. And, and as we read down, we're not, we're not going to do that right now, but you, you see where there was great sadness among the people uh, because, because of Paul's departure. But what I want to draw your attention to in verse 25 here is what Paul says about his work. He says, Now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God. Paul went preaching the kingdom of God. Paul preached the same message that Jesus preached. He preached a message of the kingdom. Paul did not just preach about how to get to heaven. Much of our preaching today, much of our focus today in the church and in preaching is about how to get to heaven. But the reality is the gospel is not, I would say this, the gospel is not even mainly about how to get to heaven. Because if we make the gospel just about how to get to heaven and we think we have found the way to heaven, we're going to be tempted to know or to believe that we're going to get to heaven one day, but we're not going to be concerned about how we live our life here on this earth. And the gospel is not just about getting to heaven. The gospel is about how we live our life right here and right now on this earth. Much of our preaching today is centered around us going to heaven instead of bringing heaven to earth. The good news is not only we are going to heaven, and that is good news. And we should be thankful and we should rejoice in that. The good news is that his kingdom is coming. We need to pay attention 
to what Jesus taught his disciples, which means he taught us also because are we not his disciples? I pray you are. And he taught his disciples to pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He didn't say pray your kingdom come, your will be done and do it when you get to heaven. He said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. In other words, right now, on earth, as it is in heaven. And we see this pattern in everything that God has done. We see the pattern in the tabernacle. We see it in the temple. We see it with the feast. All the things that God made, the earthly patterns he made, were just copies of the heavenly. And what Jesus said, when you pray, you pray that God's kingdom come, that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, bring what's in heaven to this earth. Well, how are we going to do that? We're going to do it by preaching and teaching and living out the gospel. Jesus teaches us to pray. To pray that his kingdom come to this earth. The good news of the kingdom is not just about where we go when we die. It is about much more than that. The gospel of the kingdom is about how we live our life here on this earth until we are no longer living on the earth. So Eutychus fell out of the window and died. Paul calmly went down and resurrected him in the power of God and kept preaching from midnight until daybreak. That would not, I promise you that would not happen in our churches today. It would not. Everything would have stopped. And I'm not saying that wouldn't be right. But I'm saying that we have lost our ability to look at God, to think about God, to consider who God is and put things in their proper place. Not that we would not be concer concerned with the life of, of a young man who fell out of the window. We certainly would be. That's not my point. My point is, we live in a day and an age, and the church has become very distracted by the things happening in the world. And we've become more fearful of the world than we are of God. Do you think anybody might have been tempted to say, Paul, you've talked so long that the, the young man's fallen out of the window and died. Don't you think you need to wrap it up now? We need to go home. It's midnight. Obviously, no one said that. I don't know. Maybe people left, but it doesn't tell us. It just says, Paul finished at daybreak. Why? Well, I submit to you because the people gathered in that upper room understood the importance of what Paul was communicating to them. They understood the importance of the gospel of the kingdom. They understood the importance of the church and the gospel being established and the nations being discipled. And people being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That they are taught all that Jesus commanded them. And they're taught to obey Jesus. And the commands of Jesus. 
And they understood that the gospel was not just a social issue. The gospel is a life and death issue. We've turned the gospel into a social issue today. We have the social gospel. We have social justice. We've got what Caleb talked about now in Taylor, a committee for diversity, inclusion, and equity. When we have the gospel, there is no greater social justice than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no greater way to deal with diversity, inclusion, and equity than for men to become born again, new creations, have the old passed away, and all things become new in Jesus Christ. That's true inclusion. That's true equity. That's true diversity that God would take from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation, every color of skin, every shape, size, all the diversity that God has created and bring them together as one in Jesus. The church has the answer because Jesus is the answer. Because the scripture and the word of God is the answer. And the church has got to find her courage to once again proclaim the truth. The church has got to get out of her distraction and her impatience. Think of the patience to sit there while the Apostle Paul talked all day through the night and until daybreak. People would not stand for that today. And trust me, I don't want to be here preaching all day through the night until daybreak. I don't want to do that either. But what if, what if God moved? What if God's Spirit moved? And what if that was necessary as it obviously was here in Acts chapter 20 for the Apostle Paul? Would the church stand for it today? Would the people of God fear God enough, have a sense of God enough that they would say, we need to hear what's being said here. We need to pay attention to what God is saying and what God is doing. So the good news of the kingdom is about living life here on this earth until we're no longer here. This is your time. This is my time of visitation. After Paul's conversion, Paul lived up to, to he lived his life to die for Christ. Or we could say it this way, Paul used up his life living for Christ. Paul was more than willing to lay down his life for Christ because he understood that Christ had laid down his life for him. And we see this sentiment expressed in Paul's letters. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul writes, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and who you are not your own? And you are not your own, for you are bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You belong to Jesus. Paul writes in Philippians 1.21, For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Do you understand the power of that statement? The power of that truth? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
Galatians 6.14, Paul writes, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, Paul says, The world has nothing in me. The world has nothing for me. I am crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. There is nothing in this world that appeals to me any longer. And that doesn't mean Paul was a killjoy or Paul was a party pooper or Paul was a a stick in the mud. No, it means that Paul was not drawn away. Paul was not tempted by the things of this world. Paul had tasted something greater Paul had lived his life for the lesser things, but when he found Jesus, or we should say it more accurately, when Jesus found him, because that's what really happens. Because Romans 3 says there's no one looking for Jesus. Well, how do we find him? You don't. He finds you. And when Paul put his finger, or when Jesus put his finger on Paul, and Paul was converted on that road to Damascus, Paul realized that he had lived his life for lesser things. In fact, he called them a big pile of dung. And I won't tell you what dung is if you don't know. You can go look it up later. But in the vernacular of the Bible, Paul uses a very graphic term there to describe everything that he had valued before meant nothing to him Because he had found Christ and the excellency and the power and the treasure that Christ is. Paul did not spare anything. He laid it all out and gave everything up just like his Lord Jesus did. And this is why Paul could proclaim confidently that he was innocent of the blood of all men. Paul had not failed to declare the whole counsel of God. Verse 26 and 27, he says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I promise you one day there will be many pastors, preachers, priests, and leaders who will stand before God, and they will not be able to say this because they have not proclaimed the whole counsel of God because people are afraid to proclaim the whole counsel of God today. People don't want to talk about sin. People don't want to talk about hard issues. But yet, this is the beauty of the Bible. I mean, you know, people who don't believe the Bible was really inspired by God, who think a bunch of men just got stoned and sat around and wrote these stories. I mean, I've had people tell me that so many times, I can't even count it. And those are all people that have never read the Bible, who've never bothered to actually understand how the Bible even came to be. Because the Bible wasn't written by a bunch of men sitting around in one. The Bible was written over centuries by different men in different places, in different parts of the world, with different things happening. And the reality is this, that men today don't want to preach the whole counsel of God because they're worried that it's unpopular. And it is unpopular It was so unpopular that most of the prophets were killed because they preached the whole counsel of God. It's so unpopular that the Son of God himself was crucified because he preached 
the whole counsel of God. And if we think that we're going to preach the whole counsel of God and not catch any flack, you better think again. And if the worst thing that happens to you is to be canceled by the culture you live in, then you are very fortunate. Because there are many people today, right now, paying a far greater price than being banned by some social media platform because they said something unpopular or inflammatory. Paul says, I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. This is, this is not what we think of today when we think of the gospel. There is no such thing as a social justice gospel. There is no such thing as a culturally inclusive gospel. There is no such thing as a health and wealth or prosperity gospel. There is not even any such thing as a partial or a full gospel. Depending on which pastors I'm fellowshipping with, it's not uncommon to have some ask me, well, do you, do you preach a full gospel? And I respond with, yes, amen, brother. I always preach a full gospel. Don't you? Well, yes, course, you know, we have to have a longer conversation for them to understand what I mean because I already understand what they mean because that's the world I came from. And the gospel, the full gospel is much greater than what gifts you operate in, what language you speak. The full gospel is the whole counsel of God. The Presbyterian church that wanted to take the, the song we just sang today that says, Upon the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied. They said, we love this song. We want to use it, but we don't like that word wrath. It's kind of negative. We'll pay you the rights to use your song if you let us change the words to upon the cross, the love of God was satisfied. And thankfully, the writers of the hymn said no. See, the, the liberal Presbyterian church and all the other liberal churches don't want to preach a whole gospel. They don't want to preach the whole counsel of God. They only want to present God as this person who accepts anything and everything. It all goes. And in the end, it's all going to wash out and we're all going to make it to heaven. Even Hitler and Charles Manson. Yes, somehow. You don't believe me? Read Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. But the problem with that is it doesn't quite line up with the Scripture. I mean, upon the cross, it was the wrath of God that was satisfied. Yes, love was there, and it was love that held Jesus to the cross, but what had to be satisfied at the cross was not God's love, it was God's wrath. And if we're afraid to say that out loud from our pulpits, then we're afraid to preach the whole counsel of God. And one day, you're not going to answer to me, and I'm not going to answer to you. I'm going to stand before God. And this is what Paul is saying. I am innocent of the blood of all men because I have not failed to preach to you the whole counsel of God. The gospel or the good news is not one subject presented in the Bible like a lot of people think it is. It's not even the main subject. All God's word, the whole counsel of God is good news. It's gospel. The gospel doesn't begin in Matthew 1.1. The gospel begins at Genesis 1.1. It goes all the way to the last verse of the book of Revelation. 
All God's word, the whole counsel of God is good news. The gospel is not found in part of the Bible. It is communicated in all of the Bible. The whole counsel of God is the gospel. And the gospel is the whole counsel of God. From God ordering creation to God ordering the destruction of the Amalekites, we have the gospel. From God's destruction of the firstborn of Egypt to God's salvation of the world through the death of his only begotten son, we have the gospel. If we fail to accurately declare the whole counsel of God, we fail to accurately present the gospel and we fail to accurately present God to man. The whole counsel of God presents the God of the gospel in complete picture. From creator to judge to savior and Lord, God is the gospel. John Piper has a fantastic little book called God is the Gospel. And he is. As the people of God, we must embrace the whole counsel of God and no less. Anything less is not good news. It's a lie waiting for those willing to believe it. Willing to be deceived. Remember, we're studying Romans on Wednesday night. Men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's not because they don't know the truth. It's because they don't want to know the truth. See, man's problem is not ignorance. Man's problem is sin. Man's problem is rebellion. No one is going to go to hell because no one told them about Jesus. Men are going to go to hell because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And when Jesus came to this earth, when he put on flesh and came here, was born of the virgin and walked this earth, the scripture says in John that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Why? Because the world was already under the condemnation of sin. God doesn't have to condemn us. We have condemned ourselves through the fall, because of our rebellion in the beginning. Men need the whole counsel of God. They need the truth of the gospel to break through the hardness of their hearts, to convict them of their sin, and to save them by the power of God. We must settle for no less, and we must preach and teach no less than the whole counsel of God. We must never be ashamed of the gospel, which means we must never be ashamed of God and who he is as revealed to us in the scripture. And if you listen to people, if you listen to a lot of Christians very closely as they talk, you'll hear, hear them apologizing for God. And there's no need for us to apologize for God. If you ever find yourself apologizing for God and all that he has revealed to us in the scripture, you need to check to see if you're not uh, failing to embrace the whole counsel of God or making excuses for God in the areas that are uncomfortable for you and those who embrace the sinful ways of the world. This is what we've done. Our Sunday school lesson today was on sexuality in terms of paganism. You realize humanism is not our problem in America. We've gone way past humanism. We've gone all the way full, full circle back to full-blown paganism. And the sexual morality that's being imposed upon us is is spiritual. It's wickedness. This is not just about civil rights. This is not just about human rights. This is spiritual in nature. It's straight up paganism. You go all the way back thousands of years, study ancient civilizations. It's exactly what they are putting upon us right now. They just dress it up differently. They use different language. 
They convince us that it's the right thing, it's the good thing, it's the healthy thing. No, it's sin, plain and simple. That's all it is. And the whole counsel of God presents God for who he is. And we don't like to use terms like sin and rebellion because it rubs people the wrong way. Well, maybe they need to be rubbed the wrong way. Maybe they need to be awakened to the reality, to to the truth, because the truth is the only thing that can set them free. It presents the gospel for what it is. We either accept God or we reject him. For those who accept him for who he is, it means life. For those who reject him for who he is, it means death. We do not have the right to create God in our image. That is a lie that will prove fatal in the end, but this is what men do. This is what we do when we fail to present the whole counsel of God. We create God in our own image. Here's my image of God. Let me present him to you. Well, what, what, what about this back here? Oh, well, you know, that, that's outdated now. We live in the 21st century, don't you know? That doesn't mean anything anymore. Mm. But didn't Jesus say something like, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away? Well, you know, Jesus, he said a lot of things he didn't really mean. I mean, that's that pretty much where we've come to in our day and age. You know, in our Bible reading uh, this past week, there was, there was a, a part in there where it talked about in the Ark of the Covenant, there was only the tablets that God gave to Moses on the mountain. But there's other places you'll read where there's a pot of manna and there's the, uh, uh, the almond rod that, that of Aaron's that blossomed. And I thought about that when I heard that. And I thought, you know what? If, if it turned out that whatever happened to the manna, whatever happened to the almond rod, if they passed away, and all that's left in that Ark of the Covenant was the two tablets, it's perfect fulfillment of what Jesus said. Because it's not about pots of manna, it's not about almond rods, it's not about all the things we make it about, it's about God's word. And God's word is eternal and it will not pass away. And Paul goes on and he says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And we are to take heed. What does that mean? We're to pay careful attention. We're to keep watch. We're to guard against. We're to be vigilant. It's a warning to those watching. It's a warning to the overseers or the shepherds of the flock of God. He's talking to these Ephesian elders and he's warning them to be careful, to pay attention, to guard against certain things. It's a warning to those who are tasked with watching over the flock of God, a warning to watch over themselves as they watch over the flock of God. This warning is given to those who the Holy Spirit has made overseers. This is how Paul describes them. You who the Holy Spirit has made overseers to shepherd the church of God. Paul reminds them this is the church Jesus purchased with his own blood. Here, both shepherd and sheep have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Both shepherd and sheep are not their own. Both belong to Jesus. Both have a responsibility to Jesus. 
I have a responsibility to Jesus. You have a responsibility to Jesus. The Bible says not many of you become teachers because you're going to have a more strict judgment. You know why? Because I'm up here telling you what you should or shouldn't believe. I'm up here telling you what the Word of God says, and I can either tell you the whole counsel or I can withhold it if I think that you might get upset, like a lot of pastors do. Because the number of, of butts in the seat and coins in the bucket are more important than whether the people are getting the truth or not. I'm just being honest with you. But you know what? When we stand before Jesus one day, when we stand before the Lord of glory one day and we're judged at that Bema seat, do you know God's not going to care how big our offerings were? God's not going to care how big our buildings were. He's not going to care how many people we had in each of our services. He's going to want to know whether we were faithful. And are you faithful to embrace the whole counsel of God and let it guide your life and let it inform how you live your life? Just like I've got to be faithful to embrace the whole counsel of God and not be afraid to tell you the truth. Overseers are responsible to guard the sheep against wolves. Shepherds are to take heed, pay close attention to guard the sheep against the wolves that would come in to mercilessly devour the sheep. A shepherd is to love the sheep enough that he hates the wolf. God has placed shepherds, we call them pastors, in our tradition mostly, even the Catholic priest is the pastor of that parish. They are to protect against the wolf, against the elements of this sinful world that would seek to destroy the sheep. Hebrews 13, 17, the writer of Hebrews pins these words, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who get, must give account. I must give an account one day. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Not unprofitable for me, unprofitable for you. Because if you don't receive gladly the word of truth and the whole counsel of God, it's not going to profit you. If I deliver it, that's my responsibility. I can't make you believe it. I can only deliver it. And if I deliver the whole counsel of God and you're receiving the whole counsel of God, it will be profitable to you if you will receive it and embrace it. When I get to glory one day and I say, God, how come no one listened to what I had to say? God might say to me, don't worry about that. Just be thankful you were faithful to deliver the message you were supposed to deliver. God brings the increase. I will never be a mega church pastor, and to be honest with you, I don't want to be. Now, I used to think that I wanted to be, and I realized when I came to believe the Bible, some plant, some water, but God brings the increase. God knows. God knows how big this church needs to be. God knew we were going to get another building. I didn't even know we were going to get another building. I mean, you've heard the story. I walked into a coffee shop 
just by chance, right, happened upon a conversation, two people sitting at a table trying to solve a problem. I said, well, how can I help you? I offered our meager building. And offering our meager building next door got us a brand new building on the other side. We sowed one thing in faith, not even thinking we were going to get anything out of it, just wanting to help some kids. But God knew exactly. It's plain to me now, God closed the door that needed to be closed so that this door could open so that this could come about. Now, that's just an example. That's a small example. That's an insignificant example. But this is how God works in our lives. This is why we trust him. So Paul is warning them, take heed, guard against. But the warning is not just to the shepherds, it's to those being shepherded as well. You have to receive the whole counsel of God. Take heed that you are embracing and preaching and living out the kingdom of God. That you embrace the whole counsel of God. For this is the gospel that is the power of God to salvation for all of his sheep and for all of their life. What you do on Monday morning is absolutely significant spiritually. It's not just what you do on Sunday morning. What you do on Friday night is absolutely spiritually significant. Paul goes on in verse 29. He says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come. They will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Paul is not being prophetic here. He's just stating the obvious. Paul had been around long enough. He had fought the wolves long enough, and he knew exactly what would happen. Paul had been fighting off wolves, seeking to devour the sheep from the beginning of his work as an apostle of Christ. Paul did not know the future. Paul knew the nature of sinful men. Sinful men are not only in the world, they are also in the church. How do we know? Because the Bible teaches us so. That is why God put shepherds in his church to protect against the wolves. God didn't put, God didn't put locks on the doors to keep you from going out into the world. He put shepherds in the church to protect the sheep, to teach the sheep, to guard the sheep, to be prepared for the wolves, to recognize the wolves, and to run the other direction when they see them. Paul indicates that wolves will come from the outside, Jesus warned against ravenous wolves seeking to devour the people of God. Matthew 7, 15, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. There's a very graphic picture painted there. If you've ever watched uh, the Discovery Channel or some nature show and you've watched a wolf devour an animal or a lion devour the animal and they leave the camera there long enough, you, you understand this is, this is a very graphic picture. This is what Jesus is saying. The wolves are going to come and they're ravenous. They are going to rip you apart. That's what they want to do. This is what Paul is warning about. 
And just like sheep, wolves, and false prophets come in all shapes and sizes and manner of appearance. The devil comes to us, the Bible says, as an angel of light. Paul is warning the overseers of the churches that he had established through the gospel and the power of the Spirit. He's warning them of the wolves without and within. We have men teaching sheep how to reject God's word today. We have men teaching sheep how to feel good about their sin. In fact, don't call it sin any longer because God doesn't consider it sin. But what about the Bible? Well, you know, the Bible is not without error. And these are just stories that were meant to help men in their day, but we have spiritually evolved beyond those days. Those are all real things that people professing to be Christians and pastoring churches teach their flocks. Write books, best-selling books about this. Turning them out by the scores out of seminaries. These are ravenous wolves who are teaching men to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and call it righteous. But it is not. It is sin. Men suppress the truth and they willfully forget. 2 Peter 3, 5, For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water. By the word of God. Why don't they know that? The Bible tells us they willfully forget. They don't want to know that. They want to forget that. You see, men suppress the truth. They willfully forget. The problem is not ignorance. It's sinful rebellion against God. And that has been the problem since the beginning. It's just that our sinful rebellion has been replaced with much nicer and acceptable sounding terms. Children are not rebellious any longer. They just have a disorder. They can't pay attention. Did you ever know a kid that could pay attention? If you did, they are the exception. Kids are kids. Kids are high energy. Kids do these things. Now we just, want to, we just want to take the easy way out and we want to medicate them and do things when reality is they needed to be discipled. Or, as the Bible calls it, parents disciplining their children. Some people, no doubt, need medication. Now, I'm not against medication. I work for a local mental health authority. I'm not against medication. So don't misunderstand or don't hear what I'm not saying. But not in the place of God and not in the place of the gospel. If I have an infection, I'm going to take an antibiotic, but I'm also going to pray and I'm also going to believe God to heal me. And maybe God will heal me through the antibiotic. I'm fine with that. But when I'm healed, I'm not thanking the antibiotic. I'm going to thank God. Because the antibiotic was just the means that God used to bring healing to me. There is no substitute for the gospel. The gospel of Christ sets us free from the very things that we are seeking to be set free from, the things we're seeking to, to medicate ourselves from, to escape from. We use all kinds of things. I like to watch movies and escape, but you can't live your life like that can be entertained for a time, but you can't live your life like that. 
The question is this, do we desire God enough to press through the difficulty and the hardship that life brings? Do we want him more than the lesser things we seek after and settle for? We must decide if we are willing to settle for a good, for a God, and a gospel that are neither. Do you you understand what I'm saying? We are presenting a God and a gospel that are neither when we fail to present the whole counsel of God, when we fail to preach the kingdom of God and of his Christ. The Holy Spirit makes men overseers who will not settle for the, war, for the wound being healed lightly. If it's healed at all. True shepherds will not spare the wolf. And the false doctrines of false prophets. True shepherds protect the flock of God against those people. And against those things that would devour it. From the outside or from within. Paul ends with these words, Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I command you, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit makes some overseers to protect the flock, but only Jesus saves us. Paul understood that he could not save the church. That was the responsibility of Jesus. He did all he was responsible to do, and he did it to the utmost. We see the passion and the love of the Apostle Paul, the love that he had for the people of God, He said, for three years I did not cease warning you, every one of you, night and day with tears. And I don't think that's hyperbole on Paul's point. I don't think Paul is just exaggerating. I think Paul understood the magnitude of the situation. He was getting ready to depart from them for the last time. He's emphasizing, still warning them about the difficulties that are coming if they do not heed his warning and keep in the truth. Paul is giving them hard truth because he knows that it is the only salvation. Just as they did then, we need truth as it is in Jesus today. We need the hard truth. We need the gospel of Christ that is not compromised or diluted to make men feel better in their sin. The message of the gospel is not for men to draw others away to themselves. Competition in the church needs to go away because what we should all be doing is making disciples for Jesus. The message of the gospel is to make disciples of Jesus, to preach the good news of the kingdom of God in the whole counsel of God in order to make disciples of Christ. And as we make disciples, our goal is that they become mature followers of Christ. God expects no less. Remember, the gospel is not about getting to heaven. It's about living for Christ and the kingdom of God here and now on this earth. Heaven is our future. The present is our focus. Heaven is our future. The present must be our focus. 
Thus we pray and live that his kingdom come, that his will be done on earth. And Paul commends them to God and to the word of his grace. It is God who is able to build you up. It's God who is able to preserve you and give to you an inheritance. And he will do just that as we seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And when we seek first his kingdom, when we seek his righteousness, we can rest assured that we will not go astray. We will not be lost seeking first his kingdom, seeking first his righteousness. When we do not seek his kingdom first, when we seek other than him, that is when we find ourselves hopelessly drifting away into sin. That is how we shipwreck. We take our eyes off Jesus and we focus on the very things of this world and the sin that so easily besets us. This is the exhortation that Hebrews gives to us. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Verse 3 says, Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. We can't think that we're going to go through this life without discouragement, without weariness, without difficulty, without hardship. Because Jesus did not. And no human that ever lived on this earth has. We've bought the lie. And we need the truth to set us free. And we need to be able to go through the hardships that life will bring. It's not constant hardship. That's why the Bible says rejoice in the Lord. Always, and again I say rejoice. We have so much to rejoice over. We have so much to be joyful over in Christ. Those are the things that we should be focused on. And when we encounter hardship, we need to know that Jesus is Lord. He is in control. He knows how to navigate us through the difficulties and the hardships of life. And the question is, are we seeking his kingdom? Are we seeking his righteousness? And if we are, then God has promised that everything else will be added to us. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. He has laid down his life for you. Do you trust him? I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Tortured for Christ. You should watch it if you've not seen it. It's the true story of Richard Wormbrandt. And the movie begins with this quote from Richard Wormbrandt. He says, there are those who truly believe, and there are those who believe they truly believe. And what became apparent through the movie was, after the communists beat on you, in the most cruel and unusual ways they can imagine, day in and day out, trying to get you to deny Jesus, you will know whether you truly believe or whether you believe you truly believed. I pray that each one of us here are those who truly believe. 
I pray that our faith would never be tested the way it was for Richard Wormbrandt and so many still today, even in this very moment in different parts of the world. But we don't have that assurance. And the only way we're going to know is to embrace the whole counsel of God. And if you're not sure you have, then cry out to God and ask him to give you the grace to believe, the grace to obey, the grace to walk in his way and to fear him more than you fear men. Amen? Jesus is our greatest treasure, and I pray he is your deepest desire. As we get ready to come to the table, you are all welcome if you are part of the body of Christ. You don't have to be a member of this church, but as you count yourself a covenant member of Christ's body, and you trust in Jesus as the only hope you have in life and in death. As a covenant member of his body, welcome to the table and welcome to Jesus. Here's the good news. The great shepherd of the sheep has laid down his life for his sheep. Now we are commanded to lay down our life so that we may take up his resurrection life that we may live now and for eternity in Jesus. God charges us. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today, shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. In other words, everything I do and everything I see and everything I think should be informed by the word of God. Jesus was asked, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? He said, this is the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Augustine said, love God with all your heart and go do as you please. This is God's charge to us. And may what pleases us be pleasing to him. Amen. Amen.